0: Well, we're going to continue in a sermon series that we've titled Rebuilding Church. Last week, we explored uh, the character of Nehemiah. And as we're trying to attempt to glean some of the qualities from his character, what it takes to be a part of a rebuilding project, like rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, and in, in Nehemiah, specifically the walls of Jerusalem. But this week, we're going to be spending some moments looking at another character, Sanballat which is a great biblical name that I tried to memorize before this morning, but who stands in sharp contrast to Nehemiah, who stands actually in opposition. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to open with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. I don't know why I never quite thumb this before I get up here. But Nehemiah chapter 4, if you have one of the Bibles in the pews, it's going to be on page 578. And we're going to read verses 1 through six, one through six. I think I told you one through seven this morning. So hear the word of the Lord this morning, church. When Sanballat heard we were rebuilding the wall, he was very angry, even furious. He made fun of the Jewish people. He said to his friends and those with power in Samaria, who are these weak, or what are these weak Jews doing? Will they rebuild the wall? Will they offer sacrifices can they finish it one day in one day can they bring stones back to life from piles of trash and ashes tobiah the ammonite who is next to samblot said if a fox climbed up on the stone wall they're building it would break it down so i nehemiah prayed here is our god we are hated Turn the insults of Sanballat and Tobiah back on their own heads. Let them be captured and stolen like valuables. Do not hide their guilt or take away their sins so you can't see them because they have insulted the builders. So we rebuilt the wall to half its height because the people were willing to work. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Father, we have come this morning longing to be attentive to your speaking to your word we have this audacious belief that you are one who speaks to people even like us and so we act god or so we ask god that you would speak for we posture ourselves this morning as a listening people Somehow may you equip our ears and our minds to receive that which you want to say. That it might be formed, your word might be formed in us. We offer ourselves to you this day and it's the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. So Nehemiah is his character in this story, right? All of the exiles that were in Babylon, they've moved back to Jerusalem and they want to rebuild the temple and the city and their homes and their communities that had been devastated and destroyed by the Babylonian empire. And In the book of Ezra, we have the story of those returned exiles rebuilding the temple. And the temple that they rebuild is kind of pathetic, honestly. Like when the, the initial temple is Is reconstructed. Those who remember the old, the former temple, the original temple of Jerusalem, they actually weep because it just isn't quite as glorious, this new one as the old one. But it's there. And you fast forward to the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is this Jewish guy who's living and working in Babylon. He has this really impressive and important position as the cupbearer of the emperor, but he's a Jew, and so he asked one of his brothers who had gone to Jerusalem, kind of, how is the project going over there? How is the rebuilding project going over there? And he, he receives news that it's going horribly, that the people are distressed, that they are tired, that they're in trouble, that they're vulnerable. And so he, he, he finds it his responsibility to go back and to see this project moving forward, to help construct the walls of the city so that the Temple and the people could be safe. see without the walls, the city remained vulnerable to those who may want to conquer it once again, and so establishing the walls was this critical part of the rebuilding effort for the returned to exiles they, they needed to do this, but the problem facing god 's people was that the task of rebuilding the city, the task of rebuilding the temple and Jerusalem required more than just the enthusiasm that they had when they thought about completing it. Have you ever been there before? Where the tasks that lie ahead of you demanded more than the exuberance and excitement that you had at the idea of completing it. This past fall, my, my brother and I determined that we were going to complete our first triathlon, right? So we were going to do the Olympic triathlon down in Malibu, which is a one and a half kilometer swim, a 40 kilometer bike ride, and then a 10 kilometer run, which for Americans, that means a mile swim, 24 mile ride, and like a six, 6.2 something mile run. And I remember thinking when my brother brought the idea to me like that, that this would be easy work, right? Like, I've, I've done a couple of marathons, I've, I've been a runner most of my life, I used to swim for exercise, like, this is going to be easy, I just needed to be able to finish it, and so in our enthusiasm, we did all of the easiest things that you need to do in order to complete a triathlon, right? We bought everything, <laughs> like, we bought the wetsuits, and my brother bought a new road bike, and I bought... Goggles to be able to swim in I took the opportunity to buy myself new running shoes because I had the same running shoes for a couple of years And that was like all of the easy stuff right that's all that our enthusiasm could accomplish on our behalf in preparation for this marathon But I I remember the first swim I did in training for the triathlon we we're up in Lake Tahoe and I was like I'll do a swim in the lake like how hard could it be to swim underwater with no oxygen up in elevation for the first time I was so excited that I thought, this is this is going to be fine. Well, about one-tenth of one-tenth of a mile into this swim, right? I remember thinking, this thought went through my head as I'm under the water, like, man, I am just not 25 anymore. And I came up, like, sucking for air. Like, maybe this wasn't such a good idea to do this triathlon, Chad, right? But I don't know if you've ever been there. Where what seemed like an exciting undertaking became a daunting task maybe it was going to college maybe it was a work project at home that just sits there staring at you for the past six years right like are you ever going to completely maybe it was an instrument you wanted to learn yeah I'll get a guitar I got the guitar I got to a couple of lessons and then it just fizzles out right Maybe it was a job that you thought would challenge you. Maybe it was a new hobby that you thought would be fun to do occasionally. But you start something and you realize this isn't going to be as easy as, I, as it felt like when I was excited about the task. Well, the exiles are in that moment. They've been in that moment for years. They are worn out. The undertaking of returning and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls has stalled because all of the momentum of their excitement has run out. It's fizzled, it's faded, they're exhausted, and they don't feel like they have it in them to keep on going. So Nehemiah steps into the scene, he steps into the midst of this feeling that the people have And he's trying to motivate them to keep them going like we can do it you know he's like that spirited inspiring leader and he begins to see a little progress. If you flip on over to Nehemiah chapter 3 if you have your Bible still open you'll see one of your favorite kinds of chapters in the Bible. It's a chapter full of just names, right? It's just names upon names upon names. And this is the son of so-and-so who is the son of so-and-so. And they were neighbors with Frank who lived with little Jimmy down the street, right? It's just like a list of names. And usually, like, when I read the Bible, I skip over all of those sections, right? There's, there's a large swaths of them in, in the Old Testament. But I love this list of names. Because it lists all of those seemingly unimportant volunteers, Who assist in rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. They're just ordinary citizens. They're not priests. They're not great leaders. They're not kings. They're just these poor people. Who undertake a piece of the rebuilding project of God. And I love that scripture acknowledges folks like them. The same scriptures that name great leaders like Moses. Also name Great volunteers, like Eliashib. It's a great name. But it's after the work of these in chapter 3, they're just worn out. They just have nothing left to give that we step into chapter 4 with Sambalot, who's the governor of Samaria, the area just north of Jerusalem. And when he sees their work, when he sees how they've kind of invested themselves and expended themselves to this rebuilding project, he begins to mock it. He asks these five questions of God's people. He says, what are these weak Jews doing? They think they're going to rebuild the wall. They think they're going to be able to to offer sacrifices there. Can they finish this in one day? A hundred days? Can they bring stones that were just trash and ash back to life again? This governor stands at a distance throwing stones at the work of those struggling to even do the little bit of work that they can do. Asking, do you you think that it's really possible you small, should-be-anonymous volunteers to do and complete this massive work? Do you think you'll ever be able to finish that? You're kidding yourself. You're pathetic. You are feeble. What do you think you could really do anyways? Could you really make something out of all that waste? This past Wednesday, Paige and I uh, took Levi to his first Dodgers game. It was like one of the most glorious days of my life. It was amazing to see and experience this stadium through the lens of my son to experience him to experience all the traffic through the lens of me, by the way. Oh, my gosh. Like, I was like, you're a pastor. Don't say those things in front of your son, right? But, like, walking into the stadium, you're like, it's expansive, and it's huge, and there's 54,000 people here, and we're all wearing jerseys, and he's wearing a jersey, and this is, like, part of who you are, right? You're Southern Californian. Sorry, Lauren. Go Padres. But... (laughs) <laughs> also, I'll tell you a different story another time. I had to, like, literally fight with one of the, the uh, whatever security guards to get my son a bobblehead. I was, like, fuming. Anyways, all right. So the Dodgers, they're playing this team called the Minnesota Twins. And I had forgotten that there was a player on the Twins. His name is Carlos Correa. He was a player who was on the, I guess we'll call them, the World Series-winning Astros team that cheated their way to a championship but I forgot that he had been traded from the Astros to the Twins. And so the first time Carlos Correa comes up to bat, the entire stadium, 54,000 Dodger fans are just like, boo, boo. And I'm standing on my feet and I'm like, boo. And Levi's like, dad, what are, why are we booing this guy? I don't understand. And I was like, son, see, there's this few years ago the year you were born this guy cheated us out of a championship and so Levi stands up on his chair and he goes cheater cheater and I had never been prouder of my son my whole life and the rest of the game Levi was asking when is number four coming up to bat dad because we need to boo him and so every time Carlos Correa came up to bat we were like Boo, cheater. And every time, every time, Carlos, he didn't get a hit that game. He struck out a couple times. The stadium erupted in cheers, right, at his failure. This is what's happening to Israel. And it's often actually what happens to us when we try to align ourselves with what God wants to do in us. See, what God's people are facing here is a massive audience that opposes God's work from progressing and moving forward. And when you find yourself, when you find yourself, not just Nehemiah, not just those who are rebuilding the wall, when you find yourself beginning to to move with God, What you will often find is that that there will be an enemy who stands opposed to you. What in the world do you think you're trying to do? Do you really think you're smart enough to do that? Do you seriously think it's possible for you to change? Just look at your track record. Do you think that that is possible do you really think that your weak, feeble self could ever be something more than what it already is? Do you really think it's possible for, your, for you to experience a renewal of your life? It's not. Guess what? Surely you don't actually believe that the waste that is your life could ever become something new. And we hear the voice, Cheater! Loser. Trash. Do you think that, that our church, this church could actually find new life? You don't actually believe that, that laboring and volunteering and caring would amount to much of anything here in this place, right? Look at us. Just us. You're such a small, feeble, weak group. What do you think? can actually be accomplished through you. And the grand temptation and the danger that we are confronted with when these accusations become lobbied at us personally or collectively as a church is that we actually begin to believe them. That we actually begin to internalize them. See, what begins to happen is as these accusations come our way, we actually begin to look at ourselves and we think to ourselves, I am kind of a loser, aren't I? I I really am pretty weak. I do have a horrible history, like just, man. For Israel, it would have been, "What what are you doing? We really are feeble. We really are weak ones. We really are poor We really will probably never build this wall. We will never offer sacrifices. We'll never finish this. There's no way that new life can come from us. And perhaps just as devastating to God's purposes is not simply that we believe these things about ourselves, but that we believe them about each other. They are feeble. They are weak. Just look around the room. They're never going to finish that work. They're never going to progress. They're never going to become something new. This is the lie. This is the accusation. Sometimes, actually, the interesting thing about this, by the way, is we sometimes like to frame it as an enemy. Sometimes it comes from within us, right? Like this own internal self-talk that we have about ourselves. Sometimes it comes from other people. But what's instructive for us this morning is that when Sambala offers this accus- these accusatory questions to God's people, the people of God do not look at themselves. Nehemiah doesn't look at those volunteers in chapter 3 and think like, Dear Lord, how are they going to do this? They are a bunch of losers. They are super weak. Like, what could they ever really accomplish? No, this, this isn't what happens in the text. What Nehemiah does is he turns and fixes his attention to God. In verse 4, after all of these, all this mocking happens, Nehemiah says, I prayed. I prayed, I I fixed my attention, I turned my eyes to the author and perfecter of my faith. If you jump down to verse 7, Nehemiah says this, he says, But Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people from Ashdod, were very angry when they heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls were continuing, that the holes in the wall were being closed. So they all made plans to come to Jerusalem and fight and stir up trouble. But we prayed to our God. But we looked to God. See, in the moment of accusation, in the moment of opposition, the people of God do not turn inward. They don't look to themselves for a pep talk like, I'm not as bad as they. They don't look for inspiration outside of themselves. They look to the one who will accomplish the work. They look to the one who is strong in the midst of our weaknesses. They look to the one who will restore all things. They look to the one who will finish and complete the work. They look to the one who is able to revive that which was trashed to new life. They look to the one true living God who is creating and recreating his creation. You see, the good news of the gospel is not that we are sufficient to accomplish the work that God has tasked us to do. It is rather that the God who has called us, he is faithful, that he is strong enough, that he will do the work in us that we cannot do ourselves. God's people might be weak. God's people might be tired. God's people might be worn out. They might be sufficient, insufficient for the task. I know I am. But the one we serve is none of those things. And what we see through chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Nehemiah is that despite the opposition, despite the accusations, despite the resistance of the work of God's people, God moves his purposes forward it reminds me of the words of Jesus where he says I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it God will move his will forward so how are we to deal with those moments of accusation because those are real right maybe it's just me Maybe I'm preaching myself this morning. Becky knows I'm preaching myself this morning, right? Is there anything that we can do to combat the lies that so often engulf us, fix our eyes on ourselves, and allow, have us shrink back? I want to offer two things for you this morning. One is for you personally, and one is for our church. The first thing is this. It's for you. It's, it's called examining prayer. Examining prayer. What we often fail to do in the moments of accusation is slow down enough to fix our eyes not upon ourselves, but upon God. I want to offer you a way of slowing down in the moment of accusation that I received from uh, a pastor, Rich Velotus in New York. He wrote this book, it's really good, by the way, called The Deeply Transformed Life. He says, in the moment when we feel accusation right he says we ought to ask five questions and the five questions are these they're not going to be on the screen but the five questions are these you can write them down what happened what am I feeling what is the story I'm telling myself what does the gospel say and what counter instinctual action is needed I'll go over them in a second here several years ago I had served as the interim high school pastor at my home church in Long Beach, California. Uh, they were smart enough, dumb enough, I don't know, to hire this 22-year-old kid coming out of college. There was a, is, i grew up in a super big church, right? And the ministry, the high school uh, ministry of the church had, had dwindled significantly. And so the high school pastor was there who had left, and the pastor had invited me to come serve as the interim while they found a more permanent solution uh, for the church long-term. And while I was there, like the ministry really started to thrive. Like in the eight months that I served, like we grew the thing like about five times larger than what it had been previous to us being there now. I think it had mostly to do with just like not being bad. Like I don't think it had anything really to do with me. It was just like don't be awful at your job. So... So the church asked me, because they saw the numbers or whatever, they were like, would you interview for the permanent position? And uh, I was like, I don't know. I, I want to go to seminary, and that's a full-time thing, but this is a full-time thing. Maybe God is leading me into this thing. And so I was like, you know what? I just got to be open. I got to be willing. And so I interviewed for the position, and we went through a couple of rounds of candidates and the process ultimately whittled down to two candidates, me and one other person. And when the pastor of my home church called me into the office one day when I was working, I knew that like, this was the day where he was going to share if I was going to be called to this position or this other candidate was. And so as soon as he began to talk, like I knew like this is not what I want to hear. As soon as he began to talk, I knew that they weren't going to be calling me to serve here. And he shared with me, like, "You just, you just don't have the experience." And I was like, "Yeah, I'm 22. Like, what do you want me to do, right?" But like, he says, "And this other, this other candidate just has so much experience in large churches and different kinds of ministries." And honestly, like, it felt like a punch to the gut. For some reason, this experience. Triggered me. See, although the pastor and my pastor did not say anything unkind or cutting or untrue in that conversation, I found myself really embarrassed and filled with, with every doubt and insecurity that I had about myself. And looking back at that experience through the lens of this examination, this is how I would sort of describe what kind of went on with me. What happened... A great candidate that was not me filled a position in my home church. What am I feeling? I'm feeling shame. And what is the story that I'm telling myself? If I'm not the best, maybe I shouldn't do this at all. But this is where you have to turn your attention away from yourself and on to God. What does the gospel say? Everyone has a different part to play in the body of Christ. Everyone. Maybe this wasn't my part. And what counter-instinctual action is needed? I need to share this story with a friend. Because in my moments of shame where I'm embarrassed of myself to myself, I tend to keep that and harbor it myself. And it feels more true the more I do it. You see, when we're able to slow down enough to pay attention not to the accusations that we feel are being lobbied against us, when we can fix our eyes on the gospel and its truth and its claim on our lives, the opposition will be of no consequence to us. But we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. The second thing is this that I want us to remember. Remember you're only half built so far. I've often found that my expectations for myself, and honestly for a lot of you and for other people, for my wife and for my kids, is that we should all be complete. We should all be finished projects. We should all be put together with everything in its right place, super mature. And I get really frustrated when it seems like there's a bunch of half-built people around me. I get frustrated with myself when I'm like, man, I should be a lot further along than I am in this journey than I am right now. I'm half built. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, it's okay to be halfway to the goal. I wonder how different our experiences of the accusations that come our way would be if we were comfortable being just sort of partially constructed so far. I wonder how much different a community of faith a church would be if when we brushed up against the rough edges of one another and other people and our neighbors, we thought to ourselves, they're only halfway there. That when we found ourselves failing at the same thing over and over and over again, just frustrated with ourselves, why can't I be more? We thought, it's okay to just be half built right now. I wonder... What kind of church culture would be created if we were all okay recognizing you're only halfway done, aren't you? And it's okay. See, the thing that happens here is that as the project is going with Nehemiah, that's when the enemy strikes, right? Are you serious? A fox could climb up on that wall and that thing would just be crushed. That's okay. I'm only partway through this journey. So when we talk about living a life with God, when we talk about being a part of the kingdom work in our lives and in our world, we are never gonna come to completion, folks, just so you know. It's always arriving, never arrived. And it's okay that you're only halfway there. And I hope it's okay for you (laughs) that I'm like, A third of the way there, maybe. See, church, if we fix our eyes upon the one who is doing the work, and if we're comfortable with being halfway built, being a halfway built church that's in progress, God's work will continue in us. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.